0: Welcome to the Empire's New Clothes. This is the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Bradford MacArthur. Today we're going to be speaking with Simon Mikhailovich. It's such a fascinating conversation. We're going to do something we don't normally do. We were trying to figure out what we're even going to talk about for the first, but before we really began the interview. And, and I'm going to add that in today because it was so good. So it's a bit over an hour, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. Simon has such an amazing background and and perspective that I felt like it'd be a disservice to hold all this out. So we're going to put all this in here. We're just going to meet, we're going to start talking, and then he'll introduce himself a little later on. So we'll get into it. I think you're going to really enjoy it.
1: So let me ask you a question. Do we need to to talk about what we're going to talk about?
0: We're touching... A bid on COVID, not not much. It's more looking at a real big macro view of essentially the dysfunctional socioeconomic trajectory. What does that mean for America? And then a debasement of the US dollar and a sovereign debt crisis.
1: Okay, because, you know, I mean, there are a couple of areas which I think are very important when talking about this. One is history. Mm-hmm. Because everything that is happening has happened before in whatever, specific ways, but it, it's all happened before. It's all completely predictable. Uh, and I'll mention, you know, N. Rand wrote the book in the 1950s, and anybody who, who is reading it today or rereading it today would be astounded by the accuracy not not that everything she said is exactly passing through, but the, but the concepts and the, the government interference in the economy and the inability of businesses to play. I mean, all of that is just completely on point, mm-hmm. which, of course, it's been, you know, what, uh, 60 years since she did this. Yeah. And she saw it. Um, and so what I, so if we, if we want to go there, I, so I think the, the one part is to understand that this is a super cycle that has been going on for over 100 years from the creation of the Federal Reserve, actually going back to the Panic of 07, which was the first step away from unfettered capitalism, which is a very rough system. There's no question about it. But it also, no question about it, has produced the biggest jump in uh, trickle-down prosperity mm-hmm. that has ever happened. And all the attempts to do trickle-down since then don't work because because we don't have that system anymore, so you're using methods designed, you know, that worked for. These are methods rooted in ideology, not in reality, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Okay, um, so that so that's one, and and then, and then through that, what happened with the New Deal and how that was the next step, and then and then financial repression of the 1940s, and then we go into the, you know the Nixon, uh, basically 60s where we go bankrupt, uh, which. Re, re, which results in us going off the gold standard and then that brings 80s which come with this um essential credit bubble uh creation of you know subsidizing economy with with credit and that creates all kinds of perverse incentives and you know massive debt now I, i this is all this is all very good to talk about i mean people think like what happens this week but the context is this is not a crisis that has started today it's it's a crisis is an acute symptom of a condition like a heart attack is an acute symptom of heart disease the arterial sclerosis took many many years to reach critical mass so that so that's the context that's one thing and the other thing as we are in this environment the language that is being used to describe what's going on and the policy tools again are all rooted in history and ideology but not in reality so when they talk about there's no inflation they're talking about T-shirts are not more expensive because they make them in China for three cents. People who make a dollar a day and therefore the price of T-shirts isn't going up or the tool ga- you know, kitchen gadgets and all the other stuff. Uh, but there's, there's massive asset inflation, mm-hmm. which nobody is, is looking at. And they're saying, oh, there's no inflation. So, so definitionally, the ability to understand what's actually going on, what is inflation? What is deflation, What is deflation in the environment when currency has no fixed value? Mm -hmm. Like it's like it's deflation against what? (laughs) You know, so in the gold sense that, okay, fine, the value of gold is up and down, but the the quantity of it is fixed. Well, it's not fixed, but quantity of it is predictable. Let's put it this way. How do you measure inflation deflation versus something that's a moving target? It's, it's, like, uh, it's like you're in the fog on a boat and you think you're moving ahead, but what you don't know is the current is the other way. Yeah, you're moving ahead through the water, but you're falling behind. If you, if you, if you could see the stars, you would know you're falling behind, but you can't see the stars, so you feel like you're moving ahead. So that you know, those are the kinds of things. So those are two big areas is the disconnect between the language and the, and people are throwing about words and making policy decisions based on that, which really no longer mean what they used to mean Mm -hmm. and don't apply in the way that they used to apply. Um, I mean, the example is the Republican Party keeps talking about this trickle-down economics. Like again, yes, it's a policy that, you know, in the 19th century, it worked, but, you know, you can keep talking about it. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work because the facts changed. Yeah. You know?
0: Cause you, you can, you can argue about whether you can actually control an economic cycle like that or not. But I kind of see it as there's one part where it's a loss of control of, of the actual forces of the economy, but then there's the control of the narrative. And right now that's the most powerful thing. And the most important thing for these folks we're talking about and so that's kind of the way I see it is like it's it's super important right now to keep this narrative intact because once that goes it's it's done
1: well I, I think they are they are close to that because y- y- you know they keep talking about things but for 20 years they've been saying this and that and the other thing but the real economy mm-hmm. is, is just not working the way they think it's supposed to work because it's about incentives it's exactly. not that in these decades. This decade, suddenly people changed. And in fact, the whole idea about why history is cyclical is that people don't change. I mean, it's some, but they don't. I mean, if you go back to the Bible 2,700 years ago, whatever, and you read like Ecclesiastes, where they said there's nothing new under the sun, everything that's been, um, you know, uh, we've forgotten what happened to people who came before. This is, they are writing it in the Bible. And people who come after us will forget. And, and if you put that in the context of the fact that, um, Biggest, you know, the ma- major advances in philosophy were made, you know, dur- during that time. Human self-knowledge, the Greeks, the, the the Roman philosophers, right? But technological revolution only happened in the past two, three hundred years. So, so the the revolution in human self-knowledge is several millennia old, and the revolution in our tools. And ability to do things is only a few generations long and so maybe there's a disconnect between the human hardware or i should say human software and the hardware that the human suddenly came upon very recently and have started using without regard potentially to the implications and, and this this can be this you can take that into environmental area, you can take that into finance, you can take that into pretty much anything, social, societal. The means, the physical means that we have to do things maybe are not yet blended with our software and our understanding of the world and you know the level of responsibility that humans have for what happens it's like nuclear energy, you know, I mean, all of a sudden the impact uh, just goes to the level that has never been, uh, existed before. And that requires different, different action. I mean, this requires different ethics, uh, different morality. You know, you can't start a war because you're going to kill everybody. I mean, that, that's, I, I think that there's something in that, in that line of thinking, which mm-hmm. is not that far from what you're saying.
0: Yeah. And I kept coming to that. And so I was like, okay, well, if I'm just, I was just posing it to myself, if we're operating under the narrative that we as humans are evolving and progressing, as you say, history doesn't really show we are in the humanities, if we have this idea of progress, does that in a sense de facto make mistakes of the past less relevant to me today because our generation has progressed beyond making those mistakes?
1: But it hasn't. Exactly. And so but I, it hasn't. I,
0: I even started going to some social science professors and asking this question because it keeps coming up. And they're like, yes, that's why I spend my whole life writing against the myth of progress, because we, we clearly need to learn from these mistakes. And if we believe we're incapable of making them, it's, it's like doubling down on the hubris of my generation is better than the generation before me.
1: But it, it, we've had th- you know hundreds of generations yeah. and nothing ever changes. It just doesn't. I mean the human animal, it, it, I mean, think of evolution. It, how long did it take? How many centuries? It, I was once in the uh, Natural History Museum in France, and, and they, they had I mean I, I forgot what, it's outside of Paris. Anyway, they had this um, um, chart, basically a huge wall that showed the timeline from the time that humans, uh, appeared on Earth to modern times. Oh wow! The last two thousand years are like like at the end of the like it's a big hole, and this is a long thing, and we we are like we're like here out of that whole thing, just like this, and it, it was all caves before that. So human civilization, the last five thousand years of which we like humans that look and think like us. It, it's like this. It's it's a it's a moment. It's not a it's not a long time, relative to how long. So my point is that evolution that it took that long to get out of the cave, it took that long to learn how to form cooperative groups. All this stuff with this financial stuff that's not a second. There's no time for evolutionary change within a, within this period. I mean, this is you know, we're going to learn maybe something eventually, but it's it's not. The you know, Bible was written like three minutes ago, in, in in that in that frame of you know a few seconds ago, in the, in that frame of uh, in that scale. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I I don't think there's any hope for us, like physically. Hope meaning to that we yes we're going to acquire this wisdom that's going to make us not make the same mistake that we're not going to be driven by jealousy, greed, fear. So that's, that's a part of it. But in the meantime, you know, things are getting pretty wooly here. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, they are.
1: We, I think we got our uh, basis covered here in terms of what we want to talk about. So
0: To start, if you wouldn't mind, I'm sure you're pretty used to this, just saying your name and perhaps a little bit of your financial background or what gives you the experience, your ability to speak on these topics.
1: Sure. My name is Simon Mikhailovich. Um, I was born in the Soviet Union and grew up there in St. Petersburg, uh, emigrated with my family when I was 19. Uh, we had to surrender our passports, we were allowed to take $100 a person and a suitcase, so I showed up in the West at 19 with a family who didn't speak English, I was the only one who spoke English, uh, with a, with not the proverbial $100, actual $100, uh, a suitcase and a stateless refugee, essentially. And rebuilt from from there. Uh, ended up in uh, Johns Hopkins political science degree, so I have some background in uh, in political science. But uh, eventually ended up uh, going to business school and became an investment professional, and had been practicing that for I guess 35 years now. Uh, the last 20 of, each of which in my own business. And so uh, my specialty, investment specialty, has always been credit. Uh, and also workouts, which is part of credit and in the middle in mid 90s uh, One of my colleagues at the company I worked uh, Where I worked at the time and I discovered something called collateralized debt obligations. It was a very nifty technology uh, As it turned out uh, mostly for raising money, but it seemed like a good idea at the time although by the late 90s, we figured out uh, what it was all about and I um, Uh, positioned in the after the 2000 cycle you know became essentially became distressed investors distressed investors in these complex instruments that most people didn't understand uh, that we through luck or pluck or whatever got to really understand how they worked from inside out and uh, it worked out very well for us and of course as we got into that part of the world we also then got into credit derivatives which were coming on strong there so essentially Learned and discovered a lot about securitization um, and various uh, credit derivatives, which I would describe in plain language as instruments that help uh, recharacterize low quality cash flows into high quality cash flows with the help of the rating agencies and uh, Wall Street banks and distribute these financial products, not services. Uh, to the unwary investors who buy them on the strength of the uh, ratings, which you can think of as just simply a stamp of approval, a household seal of approval in Primata, but don't really understand what they're buying in terms of the underlying risk. And so uh, understanding all that uh, became very important when, um, in 2006, I guess, my partners and I realized that we were heading for what we thought would be the mother of all financial crises, Uh, and started positioning for that by raising money to invest in opportunistic strategies, uh, by changing the way we raised money for longer-term funds as opposed to short-term trading hedge fund-type vehicles, and uh, positioning to uh, profit from what was coming. And we did. But what we didn't realize, uh, that although we didn't profit from every single strategy that we pursued, but that also taught us a lot of lessons as to what works and what doesn't work in the markets when when liquidity drains and when all of a sudden things are supposed to work a certain way, but they don't work the way they're supposed to, they work the way they do, which is, I think, a feature of all uh, crises. And so after that, uh, we we were fortunate to uh, go back into the mortgage market from the long side now and just buy up a lot of these busted mortgages at cents on the dollar. But I'd say that after 20, 2010, 2011, 2011 I guess, I personally concluded that that the there's really no value left in the market. Um, I also concluded that obviously there was no free market because under the free market system, we would have seen a uh, I don't want to use collapse, but we would have seen a significant restructuring of excessive debts. And and all of that sent me deep into the rabbit hole of understanding, uh, beyond the level at which I already understood it, uh, heading into the 2008 uh, crisis, 2007-2008 crisis, what is really happening? Why are we here? How did we end up here? Uh, And uh, I Spent many years studying it. And it, it, in the end, it led me to uh, exit financial markets and to focus on gold, which is very strange for a financial professional. But uh, what led me there is essentially realization that it is the only financial asset that is genuinely scarce, uh, that is genuinely independent from the uh, administrations, if you will, of the authorities. Uh, it does not... Need to be kept in a bank. Uh, it does not need to be transacted through banks. So this is a scarce, indestructible. It, it does not have risk of impairment. It doesn't default. You know, gold bars don't default on their obligations. So it, it, it is a, it is the only tangible, liquid, genuinely scarce, uh, universal. So globally accepted. Uh, asset which the banks and uh, the Federal Reserve and other central banks don't really control, and so that's been my focus and my business for the past uh, seven or eight years, or six, I guess six, six or seven years, um, and uh, that's kind of that's been the impetus uh, for me to learn much about financial history, about understanding how this is, and so a combination of my background with financial repression and political repression, expropriation, uh, contingency planning, or lack of contingency planning leading to some pretty uh, difficult times. uh, With the understanding of the shadow banking system that I learned from uh, credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations, and that whole market, Uh, when it's all put together, it, it really, and being a student of history and a political science background, That kind of created a certain perspective for me that uh, informs my view as to where we are and I think where we are heading from here. Not in specific way, because future is imponderable specifically, but in a more broad directional way. So the outcomes are pretty much the same. The opening line of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina is all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way which is simply a way of saying that every debacle has its own specific uh, trajectory and its own specific details, but if you apply that to family, I mean, divorce is at the end of the road anyway, Uh, how you get there is interesting, uh, but you get to the same place no matter how you get there. And so that, I feel that the financial history is very much similar to that, that the details and particulars of every situation are different, but the general trajectory and the outcomes ultimately are the same, which is uh, wealth transfer, wealth destruction, uh, restructuring of existing financial relationships, and uh, a start of uh, some new uh, relationships that eventually end up in the same place. But it's, it's a it's a super cycle, if you will. So that, that's, that's my background. That's basically how I got to be thinking about what I'm thinking and discussing what I'm discussing today.
0: You're, you're very modest. When you speak about your experience in two thousand six, seven, eight, for the layman, you you did see something brewing. You positioned relatively correctly, and in an oversimplistic terms, you you, you shorted and and did well. Can people are going to find that very interesting, and I, I think it'll add a lot to fleshing out your views of how you see the world. Now, do you mind diving into the mechanics that a little bit and, and how did you really see what you saw? And then how did you take the position against it, which is, it takes a certain level of confidence and awareness sure. to do so.
1: Well, as, as, as with a lot of things, you know, you try different things and, and, you know, you, you, uh, you get hit, uh, and you learn and, and you adjust and, and, uh, and you change. The general, the general uh, background is that being a credit investor and understanding high-yield, particularly high-yield market, uh, we, we being my partner and I, Mike Salat and I, uh, after the 2000 crisis, we already saw that time that nothing really was fixed. The markets crashed. Uh, that was the last high-yield real cycle where 40% of high-yield bonds outstanding defaulted between, say, 98 and maybe 2002, something like that, um, with recoveries of maybe 10 cents on the dollar or 12 cents on the dollar. But the reasons for that crisis were never really addressed. Uh, And it was a little bit obscured by the high-tech crash. So everybody focused on the high-tech crash. It was a major credit bust, major, major credit bust that went on for a long time. And so having realized that it wasn't addressed and how quickly the uh, pernicious, I guess, behaviors returned, how no lessons were learned. And that obviously had to do with the fact that the Fed uh, dropped interest rates to 1%, which was unprecedented at the time, held them there for a long time, which inflated uh, the uh, real estate bubble. But it's also reflated uh, junk, junk market, And so when you pair the fact that we were specifically in this area, obscure area at that time, of collateralized debt obligations, where we could see that the nature of the banking system of the country has dramatically changed, where before, I mean, I don't want to go too deeply into it, because that's a discussion in its own right, but what actually we saw, that was the beginning of understanding how credit bubble formed. Normally, in, you also have to understand the, the structure of the financial um, of, the, of the asset management business. The asset managers out there have mandates, meaning they have, uh, they have policies that allow them to invest in certain things and certain not certain other things. So you can think of it that in terms of uh, the mandates that allow investors to invest in highly rated securities. It's an ocean of money, pension funds, insurance companies. There's an ocean of money which can be directed towards various highly rated securities, which means low risk. So by creating securitization, which goes back to the 1990s, I guess, maybe the earliest to 80s, but really flourished in the 1990s. And what I said before, recharacterization of risky cash flows into high quality cash flows that the, the, the impact of that was that, whereas before, credit availability for high-risk lending and for high-risk companies were rationed very tightly, which means that the standards that the borrower had to meet were pretty high, and the cost to borrow money for risky companies was also high, which rationed credit uh, for, to these companies. So all of a sudden, you had a situation where by calling something, by taking, say, I don't know, call a number, $100 of high yield bonds and calling $90 of those bonds, AAA securities. Sesame opened and the oceans of liquidity that previously were never allowed into this pond, (laughs) poured into the pond and of course the pond immediately over I mean this is like too much rain it it, it overflow broke all the dikes and and all the uh, you know all the protective measures and flooded everything and so understanding that credit provisioning has been moved away from the banks who were responsible for underwriting the risk just like insurance companies underwrite the risk um, and then keeping that risk and monitoring it through the life of the loan, like your friendly banker used to have, who would visit the company every quarter and have lunch and talk about how the business is going. The banks became, and investment banks, instead of being the lenders, they became brokers. They became originators. They would originate this business, They would these loans, they would repackage them, they would take them to the rating agencies, that would, that would make basically chicken crap into chicken salad, uh, and then they would sell it to investors who not in a million years would ever consider actually lending to the companies to whom they were lending or to the uh, endeavors to which they were lending. Of course, this was also the story with the subprime mortgage business. Like who would ever lend to people like that? Well, no one except the brokers are interested in originating the business because they get the fees for making the loans, packaging them and selling them off. So they don't care about the quality, they don't care if these loans ever get repaid. And that's what I said in the, in the previous conversation in the earlier conversation where we started it's about incentives. It's not a, none of this is an accident. This is incentive. These are incentives. People are rational in a sense that they do what makes them money today. Uh, and what happens to that later is, you know, is not their business. So understanding that In the early 2000s provided a tremendous insight into how unsustainable that game was and of course that's why in 2006 we said this cannot continue because people are getting money who could never ever pay this money back now we were naive we didn't know that the government would just bail everybody out the way they eventually did but we we were um, you know, we, we, saw this, we saw this coming. And so we positioned for that. Now, our initial idea was to try to sit on two chairs with one behind, which is we would go long certain things and we would go cert, uh, short certain other things. Because uh, if, if you go back to '06, like who, who could know whether this is going to go on for another 10 years? How could you take a position against something you would bleed out to death if you had to pay 8% a year to carry short positions? You, you would just end up with no money. Then the timing is the issue. So in the summer of 07, now most people think it's a crisis of 08, and the crisis started with Lehman Brothers. That is factually completely incorrect. Uh, The crisis started uh, in the spring of 2007. And it could actually be dated very precisely to an article in the Wall Street Journal in which uh, it was reported that two funds managed by somebody named John Paulson suddenly produced profits of 80-some percent. Uh, due to the fact that these funds were short subprime uh, securities. And for the first time, investment banks, they were private securities. So for the first time, investment banks could no longer avoid marking them down. So these shorts, in the course of 2006, were losing a lot of money. Because even though credit quality was deteriorating very quickly, the investment banks who were responsible for making you know, creating a market for these securities did not want to reduce the marks. So nobody knew that this was going bad. But February of 2007 is when it became clear that things were in the subprime world were going bad. In the September I mean in June of that year, two funds uh, of Bear Stearns blew up. They were funds that were investing from the long side into securities which produced an 87% gain from the short side. That's the famous big short um and that resulted in a moment of clarity in the the credit markets that something was really wrong which led to a very difficult july for the credit markets and that's where we learned that sitting with one behind on two chairs in a market that has no liquidity is very difficult because things that you're short the junk that you're short should be going down more than high quality things but In a scramble and a panic when liquidity dries up uh, that's not what happens and so uh, we learned a lesson that if you want to express a view you have to be consistently intellectually pure about it you can't try to do both things and so uh, we repositioned and launched a directional short fund in october of 2007 uh, which even though you would think that it was easy it was still not easy Because when you're short with leverage and uh, the government is interferes and the markets are on these bouts of up and down and you're making money and all of a sudden you're giving it all back and you feel like an idiot that why did you miss it all? Um, But in the end, it worked out very well. So so, uh, our version of that, I wouldn't call it a big short. It was a modest short. It was focused mostly not on subprime mortgages, which is the big short. It was focused on credit, which collapsed just the same. Um, And so, um, yes, uh, it came home to us after the Lehman collapse. But until that, I would say it was touch and go, because when Bear Stearns went down, people still thought that everything was fine and that the Fed had solved all the problems. There was no systemic risk. Gold price dropped by 30 percent, almost 30 percent during that summer. But in the meantime, crisis had been underway for over a year. People haven't seen it. In fact, I believe the same is going now. And people think that this is something to do with the virus. What's going on now? No, the uh, the uh, the crisis started in the uh, fall of 2019, when um, repo market uh, blew up. Essentially, uh, the Fed, without explanation, suddenly resumed quantitative easing, stepped into the uh, repo market with hundreds of billions of dollars of support, never explained, never fully illuminated as to why or how, uh, and then essentially what. happened in the early 2020 was an exogenous event. This was like a heart attack on a cancer patient that uh, just exacerbated everything and accelerated everything. But I don't think by any means it's, uh, I I don't think by any means it caused what's going on. It simply exacerbated and accelerated it. So that's where my, my, so my insights from the previous cycle come from what I've just described to you. And then of course, in 2008 and nine, when we saw that um, you know, these subprime mortgages that we're so successfully shorted, we're selling now at cents on the dollar. You know, one thing you learn when you're a distressed investor is that there are no bad assets, they're only bad prices. So, as so long as it's, it's worth anything, if you can buy it for less, much less than that, then you can create tremendous value. And in fact, in that type of situation, you don't really make money afterwards. You're not proven right afterwards. You make money when you buy something that's worth a lot more than what you're paying for it. It's the same with any sale consumer situation, right? I mean, if you grab something at half off, uh, you've created value just by finding the price for something that's worth more and buying it. There's no, there's no uh, big secret here. <laughs> you know. Um, the difficulty is you have to have confidence in the value proposition of what you're buying. So, you know, if, if, for example, uh, you know, I don't know, Louis Vuitton bags went on sale 50% off. I think people who are in the market for those types of things and use them would line up. They wouldn't have a question. No, I don't think we should buy that because maybe they'll drop even further. Maybe Louis Vuitton is going out of business. Maybe there's something wrong with the bag. No, no, no. They believe that in the whatever. I'm not saying these bags are worth what they're being Pay, what, they, what they charge for them. But for those people who are convinced as to the value proposition, that's a great opportunity uh, to buy. And so it's the same thing in distressed investing. You have to have conviction uh, in what you're buying that it's worth more than what you're paying for it. And to have that conviction, you have to do a lot of work and you have to really understand what it is you're doing. Because if you're just doing it as a trade, like I think it's going to go up then uh, you may you know you may be wrong or you may be right but if you with the level of confidence can actually delve deep into what you're buying and understand where the money would come from and how much money might come from and what kind of disaster needs to happen for the money to be less than what you think then you have the level of confidence uh, that other people may not have to step in at the moment when everybody is scared and uh, you know not be it's not bravery because you've done the work, but it takes the work. You know, you have to do the work. That, that's so.
0: so. So you're saying in 8 09, that time period, you turned around and bought, not just closed your shorts, you bought back your shorts.
1: Bought back the shorts. and Actually, not just the shorts, just bought back outright, unlevered, distressed securities. We did the same thing in 2002. We, we, we bought back CDO tranches at cents of the dollar. That was the first bout of uh, financial success, if you will. Uh, and so this was, we repeated what we did in 02 on a, on a much bigger scale. Um, and, then, and then we couldn't believe what happened with the bailouts. We just couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe that in a capitalist society, uh, the government and central bank would bail out what we thought were just criminals who sold fraudulent securities to their, to their customers. Well,
0: that that brings us to what you kind of started ending on is um, a sovereign debt crisis. And yeah, can can you can you explain what is a sovereign debt crisis, and then we can dive into that a little more?
1: It's no different from a personal debt crisis. It's uh, the the difference is that uh, you know, I mean, it's a common sense difference. Uh, poor people go uh, bankrupt very quickly because they don't have a lot of credibility. So as soon as they run out of money, there there's no place to go. Nobody would give them any more. Uh, the wealthy people, or the wealthier the person, the longer it takes for the person to go bankrupt, because there's a you know if you think of an English lord with a 300-year history, I mean first you know they pawn the estate, then they marry an American heiress, then they sell the paintings, then they they remortgage the estate, then they re remortgage the estate, then there's, there's then there's just a the business card with a crown. They go to the bank, and on the strength of the crown, they borrow money, uh, and then eventually they they go bust. So if you take that to the sovereign level, uh, particularly to uh, a sovereign like the United States or United Kingdom, uh, the the more powerful the sovereign, uh, the more storied and the more successful uh, the sovereign, and I don't mean the sovereign a king, I mean the sovereign as a country, uh, sovereignty, uh, the longer it takes for it to go bust even when it's de facto bust. So uh, a country like Zimbabwe or Venezuela um, has hyperinflation very quickly because nobody trusts the government, and so they reject the obligations of that government. But if you look at a country like the United States, you can search uh, on YouTube a speech that uh, French President Charles de Gaulle gave in, in, in the 60s during the dollar crisis in the 1960s where he very... Uh, Very cogently explained how Americans are issuing credit, which everybody takes, uh, and with that credit they they buy real goods and services, whereas that credit is backed by nothing. And I mean, so like I said, what's happening now did not start yesterday or in 2000 or in 2008. It started a long time ago, and we can get into that, but. But so anybody who wants to go and take a look at that, it's a literally one or two minutes where he explains why gold uh, is, is the uh, global standard of value, because it's scarce, because no central bank can print it. Uh, and that's how far back it goes. So to answer your question, a sovereign debt crisis is a rejection of credit quality of a sovereign issuer by the community, global lending community, uh, and uh, or... Uh, it naturally flows into a uh, currency crisis because the usual uh, tactic of a sovereign whose bonds or who's, who can no longer borrow in the world market is to print the money. Uh, and then it's rejection of the currency. So that's why we had hyperinflation in Germany in the 1920s. We had hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. We had hyperinflation in Yugoslavia, Brazil, Argentina, and many, many other countries you would note that those countries are less prominent than the United States. And so their credibility uh, has collapsed much quicker. So the bigger, the the wealthier the person, the longer it takes for the credibility to collapse. So we are in a, a, it's a confidence game. The confidence game is based on confidence. So the more confidence people have, the longer it takes to lose it. But once it goes, it goes. And so that's where, uh, that's I think where we are. And that's why a uh, sovereign debt crisis that we're in right now uh, is taking so much longer to play out than in a place like Zimbabwe uh, that has no credibility and very little confidence of other people. Uh, but the gist of it is no different.
0: Like you say, this isn't, this didn't just start in 07 or uh, in the tech bust. This started a long time ago and as you say, it is a confidence game. It's, it's this narrative that needs to be worn away before the underlyings eventually. In your view, can you bring us up to speed of where you see this kind of beginning in
1: a sense? I think the arc is very clear. It's very simple, and anybody can understand it by looking at themselves. Younger people are more uh, 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 comfortable with taking risks for, for various reasons the older person gets, uh, the more successful person gets. Usually the risk-reward switches to where keeping what one has already accumulated becomes more important than acquiring more. It is the same dynamic, I mean, it's obvious, why? Because when you have little to lose, you're willing to take chances to acquire it, and once you have a lot to lose, the equation uh, necessarily changes, because now it's not I have everything to gain and nothing to lose, now it's I have a lot to lose, and maybe gaining it is not going to change my life that much. So, why do I need to take the risk? So, this is a very, uh, I think, clearly understandable human trajectory of every person's life. Um, it is no different for empires. It is no different for countries. So, when a country is young, uh, it takes a lot of risks. It is willing to do things that uh, uh, mature and established societies are not willing to do. So, in the context of the United States, When the country was young, uh, the pilgrims came here uh, and people came here from all over the world with the idea that they're going to build wealth, that they're going to build it in a free market economy and uh, pursued essentially a very harsh, uh, pure capitalist system, uh, really Darwinian economic system uh, for all its harshness is probably the most effective uh, tool or vehicle for uh, creating prosperity through Uh, trickle down and various other methods uh, for the broadest uh, portion of the population. So if you look at the United States from the 1780s and through the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, it has gone from an agrarian, uh, pretty rugged place to an industrial powerhouse, uh, extremely wealthy, extremely dynamic. Uh, this happened through, with a lot of heartache. There were a lot of depressions and, and crashes in the, in the, in the 1800s uh, in that century. But net-net, it created a massive amount of wealth. So by the, by the early 20th century, uh, workers at the Ford factory were able to afford Ford cars, whereas a worker in a you know, British manufacturer, you know, Dick, Dickensian conditions, completely different situation. But just as with, just as with life, life cycle. Uh, Societies have a similar cycle. And so when there was a massive crisis in 1907 that threatened to collapse the financial system, uh, the United States has gotten wealthy enough that the powers that be, which was at that time private powers that be, uh, J.P. Morgan famously collected the bankers in his uh, mansion in in New York City and uh, held them hostage there until they agreed to bail out the financial system. That was that that was the the original sin, right there, 1907. And as a result of that, by 1913, uh, the same powers that be, the same elites, developed an idea that if we had a central bank, which they called the Federal Reserve, uh, instead of J.P. Morgan getting everybody and beating them over the head, that Federal Reserve would be able to do that function and would be able to control uh, the situation better so that we had, you know, maybe not as much to gain, but we wouldn't have... uh, you know, we we wouldn't lose what we already gained. It's very clear how that how that evolved. Uh, this exacerbated during the Great Depression, when instead of uh, Andrew Mellon, you know, famously said, "Liquidate labor, liquidate unions, liquidate capital," in other words, just reset the game, start fresh, excise the excesses. But instead of that, uh, Roosevelt administration came in and instituted what's called what was called the New Deal which in retrospect was of course a major move towards a socialist economy as opposed to a pure market, free market economy, uh, introduced massive regulations, uh, introduced the pension systems and a lot of other things which are all in, in their, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, all of these things are societally, morally, emotionally positive, but they have long-term consequences which we are now experiencing. <laughs> Uh, to understand why that was, uh, why these events I'm describing is the original sin, one doesn't need to be a genius. You'll just go read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and just ask yourself this question: Having read this book, how could, in the 1950s, uh, at the pinnacle of what appeared to be American economic and financial success, someone could write a book that so precisely and presciently would describe where we are today. And she was not the only one. There was another gentleman, Garrett Garrett, whom I'd mentioned to you, even though his first name and his last name sound the same, the spelling is a little different, one with two R's, uh, wrote uh, in, in the 1930s uh, and wrote in the 1950s uh, This very similar analysis of the uh, of Roosevelt administration and what it did, uh, and uh, railed it going against what he saw would be the destruction of American capitalism and the free market economy, which, frankly, we've now seen. So from that, we went on into the 1960s, the Great Society legislation, uh, uh, the war in Vietnam, which we could not afford, which led to the French. Again, I, I would encourage people to watch that uh, little clip uh, of de Gaulle uh, during the dollar crisis in the 1960s. Uh, we led the French to call the United States out by sending destroyers to pick up the gold, uh, as opposed to being paid in IOUs. Uh, They said, fine, if you want to spend more than you make, uh, why don't you pay us in real specie? Uh, The U.S. gold reserves uh, dwindled from 22,000 tons by 8,000 tons by the summer of 1971, I guess, when uh, uh, Nixon administration realized that if this was to continue, the United States would be cleaned out of all gold. And and they took... uh, the dollar of the gold standard, which has essentially made it unredeemable and removed any limitation. Now, a lot of people think of a gold standard as some sort of very ideological thing. It may be that, but what it really is, in very practical, simple terms, is just a limit on money creation. Because gold is, is in finite supply. By time, I mean, it doesn't have to be gold. Just gold is had emergent properties. It emerged out of the market. Nobody appointed gold to be this arbiter of value. It's just through multiple civilizations unrelated to each other, the Mayans, the Romans, the, uh, the Chinese, uh, who did not communicate with each other, they also the Egyptians, they all selected this, this substance as the valuable uh, for a lot of various chemical properties that it has and other reasons. Um, and so in the, in the context of what we're talking about, it's simply a mechanism for constraining governments propensity to overspend and uh, to create credit out of nowhere. I mean, that's really what it is. it's This is no different what we're experiencing that what France went through with the Mississippi bubble or England went through uh, or Tilipmania in the Netherlands, or the uh, I mean the, what a South Seas bubble in uh, in the UK. I mean, the the structure of what's going on is very similar. Just like I said before, the uh, all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, so this is we have our own circumstances here, but that doesn't change the gist of what's going on. And so in the 1970s we got off the uh, of the gold standard. Uh, this led to massive inflation. Uh, in the 1970s the dollar lost, uh, I think, 60 percent of its purchasing power just in a few years. Which is interesting because no, it's not interesting, which which highlights how uh, nominal prices and real prices. Uh, should not be viewed separately from each other because the S&P 500 ended that decade of the 70s 15% higher than it started. But the U.S. dollar uh, bought 60% less than it did. So if you had a stock portfolio, uh, which you kept for retirement, uh, your stock portfolio only bought 50% because it went up 10, 15%, only bought half of what it could buy just 10 years earlier. Even though... If you looked at your statement, it looked like you had the same amount of money, except you didn't. That took us into the 1980s and Reaganomics, which was really nothing but a, a uh, scheme. And I don't know if you want to use it in the British sense, which is a uh, pernicious scheme or I'm sorry, in the British sense it's just a scheme is just a system or in the American sense, a scheme, which is a scam. Uh, but in either way, it was a system that subsidized consumption and production through credit, through credit creation. And you would observe that from 1982 on, uh, interest rates nothing but declined for 40 years straight. And asset prices nothing but increased for 40 years straight. And the debt has increased uh, significantly faster than the uh, GDP, the gross domestic product. So in other words, the obligations on the economy have been growing since that time at a much higher rate than the value of the economy. So that is a classic definition of increasing leverage. When you're putting more and more debt on the same amount of value, you are increasing leverage. And as you're increasing leverage, you're increasing risk. Uh, You're also, in a way, debasing the money because um, you are, um, well, and that's a separate discussion, but it's an important discussion because uh, the idea of inflation and understanding what there is inflation or there isn't inflation, is very much tied into the ideology of what is inflation and and books on on conventional economics, which frankly don't reflect reality anymore, and therefore everything people say or think is going on is not necessarily what is going on in real life. So what I mean by that specifically in this case is that uh, we had a number of trends going on from the 80s on, I mean 90s particularly, the start of globalization the outsourcing of manufacturing uh, to countries where people, instead of making, you know, I don't know, $20 an hour or $15 an hour, were being paid you know, $3 a day. So they could manufacture goods uh, and even some services at a, a fraction of the cost that it could be produced, uh, say, in, the, in the developed economies like the United States or you know, UK or Germany, France, um, which resulted in a dichotomy where consumer goods, which are observable, uh, we're not increasing in price that quickly but asset prices were increasing in price very quickly and so if you then posit for a minute that there's a difference between a consumption dollar in other words it's a dollar that we used to buy stuff you know so all of a sudden stuff became cheap very cheap I mean t-shirts in Walmart I mean you could cover your nakedness for virtually nothing these days I mean for you know Uh, I mean, if you don't care about quality, if you just care about utility or can openers or, I don't know, cheap knives, bed, pots and pans, all that stuff, it's produced in unlimited quantity for very, very low price. Uh, Of course, they're not counting the fact that all this stuff doesn't last a fraction of the time that the old well-made stuff lasted. And so, in the course of a lifetime, you have to replace it multiple times as opposed to you, you used to buy a can opener that lasted you the rest of your life. You only needed one. Now, you need to buy one every two, three, or four years because the plastic ring in there <laughs> goes bust every, every few years. Uh, and so, um, so, people don't notice that inflation. But if you look at, uh, at a capital dollar, and what is, it, what is the value? So, the value of a consumer dollar is how much goods and services, consumer goods and services it can purchase. Value of a capital dollar, investment dollar, is how much income uh, uh, or cash flow uh, it can generate by being lent or given to somebody else. Right. So, if you buy, if a pensioner buys bond, let's say a pensioner requires with uh, retires, I'm sorry, with a certain amount of money. If you take a look at how much money it took to um, for a pensioner, even as short times before the last crisis, say 2007 to retire and on a risk-free basis generate a living, not wage, but a living income, Uh, and look at it today, it it takes probably five, six times as much money today as it did then. Well, you can think of it however you want to think about about it, but the, the real answer to this is that means that capital, which is this investment dollar, has been massively devalued. There's been a massive inflation. That has destroyed the purchasing power of, of, of investment dollars, and that is because of the policy of credit creation and subsidies, and the too big to fail, and the inability to clear the brush. And so, first, in the 90, first there was Continental Illinois, which was the bailout in the I think eighties. Then there was the bailout of Chrysler. The Chrysler was too big to fail, and then Mexico and the Latin American, you know, and tequila bonds. Uh, you know, they were too big to fail. So the government bailed them out and then, and then it was the, uh, you know, the real estate and the high tech market in the early 2000s. And then it was the subprime mortgages and the banks. Oh, it was also, of course, the long-term capital management in the, in the nineties. I mean, imagine they, they thought that, that the $3 billion uh, of, of uh, losses was, was, was unsustainable. I mean, c- compared to the numbers we're dealing with now, uh, it's like antibiotics, you know, you have to keep taking. And the more you take, the less they work. And eventually they stop working and you still got the infection going. So that's kind of where this, this is this is how this is working. Um, so that's how that's how I see this developing. So this brings us to now where essentially now the capital markets are too big to fail because the pension funds are, you see, there's never been before today, before this uh, generation, there has never been a universal pension system like before 1930s before Social Security was created no country in history ever had a pension system I mean governments had pension systems for government employees and private companies had pensions for their for their own employees but a universal pension system has never existed before which means that before the lenders were typically the wealthy and the borrowers were people who needed the money But today, the lenders are the pension funds, everybody. And so whereas before, you could simply, either the markets would crash and the rich people would go bust and there would be new rich people would emerge, today, if the markets go bust, everybody's pension goes bust. And there are 75 million baby boomers who are aggressively coming to collect these pensions in real time. And so we're in a no-win situation here. And that's, that's kind of where we find ourselves now. I mean, that's as simple as I can explain it. I don't know if it's too simple, but...
0: No, it's... you know, I really like how you began that talking about comparing it to a human life cycle. And I've thought about it, I guess, in general ways like that. But when you said it, it, it made so much sense in that you get to a point where you've got too much to lose and you can't make the right decision, potentially. And, and I always think about this in the analogy of a, of a forest fire, where we used to operate under the framework that we should suppress them at all costs because they're bad. And then we realized we had these absolute ragers which destroyed everything. And, and we came to the conclusion oh, you know what? It's actually good to have fire, it's healthy. Some trees can't even grow without it. Um, and so we had these controlled burns. We just don't want to suppress them forever because then it damn, it destroys everything. And I see that a lot in these economic cycles and, and how we repress a fallout or a downturn or a recession because we don't want the pain, but you almost need that cleansing in order to not get to a point where either you are supporting zombie companies with just printed money or or you get to a point where you, you, you honestly can't make the right decision because you have too much to lose at that point. And that's so much what I hear you, you saying is we've essentially backed ourselves into a corner where there's, there's no win at this point.
1: It's, there is no way out of this and there's no, there's no good way out of it. Period. Yeah. There just isn't. It's a question of who's going to lose money, how much money is going to get lost, and what are the implications? I mean, there's really no other. There's no other way. Uh, and what, what I think, the other thing to add to what you're saying, is that in this pursuit, which is very human, you know, to pursue perfection and ideal situation, right? Uh, in this hubris that we had, that we could control everything, that uh, we didn't need to be prepared for things. I mean, look at the, this virus situation. I mean. Forget about who's supposed to have ventilators or masks or whatever. We, what this exposes, we have no civil defense. I mean, the country has lost civil defense. If you go back to the different times, World War II, you know, 30s, where the times were rougher. I mean, Budden Powell, who started uh, the scout movement, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. I mean, that was, this was early in the 20th century, this coming of the idea of the need to be prepared for adversity. You know, scouts, they go in the woods, they learn how to start a fire, they learn how to, what, what happens when you break a, an arm in the wilderness, you know, how to, how to put a splint on. I mean, all those, all those things, and it used to be called civil defense. You know, pe- people used to have drills, how to go to the bomb shelter and all that kind of stuff. None of that. No masks, no ventilators, no supplies. It's not the matter of this administration or that administration. I mean, this is something that should be in place at all times, always, we don't have it. So the entire culture of preparedness, the culture of being ready for adversity and meeting this adversity with a proper response, it's the same what you're saying about forest fires. It's suddenly this idea that through some sort of a government management, we can protect everybody. And the regulations of the SEC regulations, how investors shouldn't be allowed to do this, it should be allowed to do that, we can just protect everybody, we can't. We can't protect anybody, we can't protect ourselves. So this, this massive human overreach that we are observing here, that somehow central bank can manage the economy. This is a Soviet idea, central planning, that they, we could just calibrate it just so. It doesn't work, it hasn't, I mean, the Soviet system didn't collapse for the lack of, for the lack of effort. I mean, you know, 70 years, it's not like I'm on, on bayonets too, you know, propped up by the bayonets. It's, it wasn't like they, they didn't try hard enough. And yet, not 30 years after spectacular collapse, spectacular collapse, overnight, with no crisis, with no revolution, just, just poof, here we are advocating the same ideas. Practicing the same ideas, the very same ideas that 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 tanked that country of 300 million people. You know, so I, I, I'm I'm flabbergasted. It's the best I can describe it. I mean, you talk about no memory. I mean, talk about not learning from history. I mean, to the nth degree.
0: I It's so easy to have anger towards a group of people over this. But I, I honestly just have empathy because. I could see myself doing the same thing if I experienced a certain, you know, I grew up somewhere, I, I had a certain life, I had a certain worldview. Like, you don't envy someone in that position who, they they just want to do the right thing in a way. That, no one wants an economic collapse tomorrow to happen. And so they're going to do something today that will postpone that happening tomorrow. We've just all done that for
1: 100 well, the problem now. is we've been doing it for a hundred years. Exactly. See, if we started yesterday, maybe we would have a lifetime of this of this insanity, but we don't. This started a hundred years ago when JP Morgan got those people in the room and prevented the clearing of the markets. He set us on a path. He was a wealthy man and he did not want to lose his wealth. And so were the people in the room. They couldn't afford to go out of business. They should have all gone out of business and new banks would have sprouted and would have been a new spring. New spring would have sprung, but they couldn't afford to let that happen. And this, this just these mistakes have continued to compound. And now it's, it's, it's global. And so there's, I mean, there's really, there's no market, there's no price discovery, there's no capitalist system. Uh, capital is being destroyed. Everything that we have grown up, the ethos of do the right thing Save your pennies. Don't be profligate. Don't get into debt. I mean, everything that morality teaches, the Christian, Judeo-Christian tradition. I mean, it's all thrown to the wind. Go spend. I mean, George Bush stood there and you know whatever after 9/11 or whatever it was. Don't worry about the Iraq War. Whatever. Go to the mall. Spend. You know that that's the that's the gestalt. I mean, that's the thinking that we are living with now, and that's what that's that's going to cause a reset or restructuring, I guess, uh, that we are inevitably steaming into.
0: If you could go back in the late 1800s or a couple decades before 1907 and with a magic wand have a bit of, I don't want to say control, but something like that where you you have a very strong impact into the economic, the civil, the moral framework of how the Social and economic machines are working. What would you want to see, so that organically in 1907, all the men in that room made a decision that was good for the long-term health of the country? Like, what would you want to it's see imposs- in a society? It's
1: impossible. It's impossible. That's why <laughs> empires rise and fall. It's impossible. It's a completely natural thing. It, it, the the uh, Pure capitalist system, as I said before, is very harsh. It's really Darwinian. Yes, it has, you can't have your cake and eat it too, is the bottom line. You know, we want what we want, what the social democracies, the European social democracy post war, what they thought they could create is a private private enterprise system coupled with a social welfare system. And it, it all starts with good ideas and good intentions. But corruption is part of human legacy as well. You know, when you have, I mean, it's, it's, it's pure, it's completely natural when you have a government, I mean, just imagine the dynamic. I mean, the that's what the Soviet Union was all about. A government employee who makes a modest amount of money is in charge of allocating vast sums of money that flow through his hands that are not his money, but he has the power to direct this money to somebody. Politicians who himself doesn't make a lot of money, but cavorts with very wealthy people, whom he can make even wealthier by simply voting yes or no on a particular piece of legislation. How can you withstand this? How can any human, okay, any human may withstand this, but how can humans as a group throughout the society and throughout time? It's impossible. And so these systems become corrupt because, just to just to what i described it's just natural the temptation is is impossible to, to uh, i mean it's impossible it's impossible and so i mean even under stalin when they used to shoot people i mean for the, the the most minor infractions there was a vibrant black market doesn't matter they couldn't control it the communists couldn't control the black market regardless of the draconian penalties because Human imperative to uh, get a piece of the pie by any way that one can. So, so the pure um, capitalist system—I mean, it channels that in a way, but at the cost of large swaths of societies, societies not participating to the same extent. I mean, yes, it created that trickle-down prosperity of which Republican Party has been talking for the last thirty years, even though their ideology completely no longer reflects the reality of the economic system. So they talk about these processes. The Democrats are exactly the same way from a different side. They talk about all these social programs, which they think are going to solve poverty. They're going to solve this and they're going to solve that. They've solved nothing. The trickle down has solved nothing because the real system, it works differently than than both. The narrative describes the system as working. It's not the same. And so that's why these things don't work. So I think that we are, uh, as a human species, we are um, doomed, if you will, uh, to repeat, well, I mean, we're, we're not doomed to, uh, to disaster in our lives. I mean, remember, all of this, we're discussing financial economy and political economy. There used to be a subject political economy. It was not a quantitative economics that is practiced now where you think that a Taylor rule or some formula can describe exactly how society works. I mean, political economy used to be as much a social science as it was a as a, as a financial science, uh, a, a, because it, it, it accounted for human proclivities and, and you know, uh, human nature. Whereas now they say, oh, if we just dial the thermostat by three degrees, the unemployment should be that the interest rate should be this. It's really it's really utter nonsense. It's, it's either nonsense or hubris or a combination of the two. However, you want to you know, describe that. I guess it's hubris with nonsense. Uh, so I don't think there's a solution to that. I don't think there's anything I could have done in the 1900s or 1800s to change that. I think it's a natural trajectory that all empires rise and fall. Uh, it takes longer for some to rise and fall than for others. Uh, we have been through a tremendous industrial revolution now, and uh, both technological revolution. Uh, and... Uh, You know, I mean, just ask yourself a very, again, you don't need to go very far. Ask yourself a very simple question. Do you agree that over the past 30 years, the world has gone through an unparalleled uh, leap in technological capabilities and, uh, you know, telecommunications, robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, bioengineering, and all those things? The answer to that is yes. It's objective reality. Then ask yourself this question. We haven't had a credit cycle in 20 years. What, what about all these legacy companies that are still doing whatever they've been doing? Okay, so we know about Kodak, we know about Polaroid. I mean, there are a few examples, you know. But where, where is the railroad bust? I mean, the railroads were the backbone of the American economy. And they all went bust in, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, when, when the economy changed. The technological revolution brought the internal combustion engine, changed everything. So where is the huge reorganization of the economy to reflect this change? It's not happening because it's not allowed to happen, because that would create strife, that would create unemployment, that would create massive reallocation of labor from unproductive endeavors to looking for productive endeavors. It's big change, and it would be uh, accompanied by potentially political and social instability as the 1930s were. I mean, just think what the internal combustion engine did to agriculture, where all the horses that used to have to eat 24-7, so the oats that were planted, the infrastructure for you know the furriers or whatever, all the professions that existed around the horse trade, there were millions of people, all of a sudden, they got freed up. So agriculture went from 50% of people involved uh, in growing food to 2-3%. Well, it's a major transition. We should be having one now, but we're not, you know, we're trying, to, we're trying to fix it.
0: It seems like this is the decline of the American empire in, in some capacity of the term. If you say that, you sound like a crazy fringe, corner of the internet kind of person. But do you think many of the people either voted in power or just have power because of uh, financial or whatever, any other means, do you think people see this as a national security issue, what we're talking about? where if, if, this, if this narrative stops and this credit cycle truly busts, is it seen as that for some folks and that's why it's so ideologically opposed to letting it happen at all costs?
1: Yes. First of all, the decline and fall of the U.S. empire is as radical as that sounds. It, it's a, the, the fact that it's taken as a radical and uh, Armageddon-like talk is pure hubris and a pure political chicanery. The British Empire rose and collapsed, and so did the French Empire and the Dutch Empire and the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire and the Soviet Empire uh, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Anybody who has been to London and to the UK or to Moscow or to Vienna, uh, or to Istanbul would confirm that life in those places has not been extinguished, that the food in all those places is pretty good, that people have, that there's, you know, Bolshoi theaters, there's still ballet there, and the Royal Opera House in London is still putting on, uh, you know, uh, ballets and, op- I mean, the, neither the culture nor the prowess of these countries has, they just are no longer the, uh, the dominating empire. And yes, there, there, you know, and so is the Roman empire, but you know, Rome is actually as shabby as it is. It's a very romantic, beautiful place with terrific food. So I, uh, and people live there and enjoy life. So I think that, um, it's always uh, a feature of imperial hubris to equate the collapse of the empire or demise of the empire with the collapse of the world. Not true. Absolutely not true. Uh, I grew up in the Soviet empire, uh, the Soviet empire, collapsed. Life in Russia and the republics or the countries that surround it has not been extinguished. And if anything, they have bounced back pretty well now, 30 years later. So I think that that's just, uh, that's just political talk to sh- shut down, uh, uh, any sort of, uh, alternative conversation. Now, the point that you're making about national security, I think is critical. Uh, and that is, It's critical for everybody who has savings. The reason I say that is because the only reason the United States enjoys the position that it does is because of the post-war World War II arrangement that placed US dollar as the reserve currency of the world. First, as somewhat backed by gold, and then without gold, uh, after 1971, Nixon closed the gold window. You can look at our balance of payments, you can look at, you know, you can take, you can imagine it's your household budget. I know people would say it doesn't apply to countries, but yeah, for a while it doesn't, but then it's a credibility issue, eventually it does. So yes, there is no question that collapse of the U.S. economy, and again, collapse, there's a word, let's call it restructuring. Massive restructuring. Balancing the books. It's no more than that. A balance sheet You know, an income statement describes what's going on from week to week, month to month. A balance sheet is a cumulative tally of who owes what to whom and who owns which assets and which assets are just owned subject to debt that other people actually, you know, that's collateral for somebody else. So balance sheet doesn't lie. So if you look at the balance sheet of the United States, it's completely untenable. And therefore, uh, the and the only reason it became untenable is because of this uh, reserve currency status of the dollar, which the United States can print out of nowhere and pay for real goods and services, which actually cost real value to produce. You know, real resources, commodities, and labor uh, to produce. So, uh, collapse of the U.S. dollar, or collapse or devaluation, massive devaluation of the U.S. dollar, inability of the United States government to uh, fund its uh, military and pension and other obligations, uh, the way it's doing now with borrowed money would lead to essentially shrinkage of the U.S. influence around the world. Uh, we would not be able to maintain the military presence that we do. And that. And the reason I said that that's a b- major problem for uh, the savers is because the resolve of the government to prevent that from happening futile as that may be, uh, is extremely high. And the measures that all governments have taken over the years, throughout history, in the face of that kind of threat, uh, are draconian. Expropriation, expropriatory taxation, uh, controls on capital movements, uh, these perpetual bailouts, the unfair rules, the redistribution of wealth, and all those things. And a society where we have to rely on our savings for a retirement. And with the idea that the government may not be in a position to provide a retirement for everybody. And you can look at what happened post-Soviet Union. I mean, the people who suffered the most were the elderly. They're people who did not have an opportunity to rebuild. The, the life expectancy. And this is the tragedy. This is the tragic part. So the Soviet collapse has proceeded without a war. Uh, without a major... Uh, disruption visible from the outside but male life expectancy dropped from the mid 70s to 57 so a lot of men just died people men in their 50s and late 40s who lost their jobs who had positions in the old sort of economy it's it's lack of opportunity uh it's it's losing everything you had losing your place in the world Losing your position of, you know, I mean, imagine somebody with a career, you know, who's in his 40s or 50s or 60s, you know, who's who spend the life as a life as a middle management or an engineer or a professional who suddenly finds himself in abject poverty and with no real, with no means to provide for the family. You know, I mean, it's it's a disaster. Uh, of course, the health care collapse. As well, uh, so drinking drugs. We're seeing it in the United States, the drug epidemic, the, uh, you know, the, what are they called, uh, opioids. I mean, that's that's part of that. So the tragedy was silent and quiet and under the radar screen, but but uh, real nonetheless. Now the older people, of course, have no ability, like the younger people have ability to rebuild their savings. The older people do not. So the baby boomers are 75 million strong. That is a generation who in part responsible for what happened here and i believe in their old age they will pay for this and i say they we will pay for this i am one of them we will Uh, and so from my point of view the reason i do what i do and the reason i decided to do what i do and the reason i chose this weird you know physical gold it's weird for a financial professional i mean talk about conspiracy theories talk about that is just from the experience of seeing the Soviet collapse and the Argentine collapse and the Yugoslavian collapse and the, all of these other collapses, financial collapse and the consequences that were brought to regular people, never mind the wealthy, but the regular people, uh, are devastating on a human level, because to, lo- to, to lose your life's work, to lose your nest egg, um, is, is it's devastating. You know, the Alfred Lord Tennyson line, you know, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, doesn't apply to money. You don't want to have it and then not. <laughs> you don't want to think that, you're, <laughs> that your pension and your old age is secured and then to find out that you can never retire and that you have to get up with all your aches and pains for the rest of your life and, and do the work to just support yourself. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. So... That's basically how I see it. I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, but that's how I see it.
0: Do you think the experience of leaving the Soviet Union with your family has like dramatically impacted how you see the world now, or do you think you would have you would have come to these views anyways if you if you hadn't, even if you hadn't like actually experienced it?
1: No, no no question. no, no question. Of course, we're all we're all a product of our experience. I mean, we don't learn from history, but we certainly learn from. But you know, most of us learn from personal experience. Um, no question about it. And I, I hate to say it, but I, I see too many parallels uh, to here. And frankly, if you if you if you you know, I mentioned Ayn Rand and and, and the uh, and Atlas Shrugged, um, which is an ideological book, and I don't sub- necessarily subscribe to her ideology. I, I recommend it uh, I recommend that everybody reads it right now not because of its ideology it's, it's a lot of verbiage it's very verbose but the ideas of uh, of corruption and free enterprise and, and and the meaning of honest money and honest day's work for honest pay those fundamental human ideas are very important and, and identify seeing when they're not when they're being destroyed is clearly requires some sort of insight which i have developed so the reason she wrote this book not the reason but the way she was able to see it she grew up in russia pre-revolutionary russia as a 20-some year old just like me she lived through the russian revolution i lived through you know uh, through the soviet era of stagnation brezhnev stagnation Uh, she understood what that did to the uh, entrepreneurial classes to the intellectual classes to intelligentsia and the culture and, and everything and so she saw it in the 1930s she saw the seeds of destruction being sown in the united states when the country could not face the great depression and its consequences and decided to go the sort of adopt some sort of quasi-socialist uh infrastructure and so I, it's the same thing i mean i i yes absolutely i see a lot of these things the, i mean and it's not just it's not just the economics i mean like, look at the, when I came to this country, I mean, you could, you know, you could do anything as long as it wasn't illegal. It was permitted. Now, as, as unless it's, per, it's permitted, it's illegal. Uh, you, you need a you need a photo ID to walk into a to an office building in New York City. I mean, you need a photo ID to travel. Uh, I mean, the Soviets didn't frisk people at airports, not in domestic flights. They. they didn't I mean, but you needed the you needed a passport to travel domestically. and you now starting in in October of this year, you essentially need the passport to travel in the United States because the new uh, driver's license that will allow you to get on a domestic flight has the same requirements as your passport. your you know the evidence of where you're born, the evidence of your citizenship, uh, the original social security card, and and also so it's an equivalent of a domestic it's been brought into compliance. Uh, with what a domestic passport would be. Now, I, I, some people would say, well, it's a good thing. Well, maybe it is, or maybe it isn't, but it's not the United States that existed thirty years ago. I mean, it's not the lore of the you know home of the free, or whatever, land of the free. Uh, it's It's a land of control uh, in that sense. Uh, and so people, you know, people stand in line at the uh, at the airports and they think that that's okay. I mean, I don't think it's okay. I mean, when my mother, 88 years old, gets frisked because she has knee replacements, and so uh, therefore she can't go through a metal detector, and they have to, sh- she's like, you know, four or five on a good day, a little 88-year-old woman, a- and they give her a second degree uh, as if she's a domestic terrorist. Come on. That, so yes, I see, I see, I see in both financial and political and other spheres. I see too many uncomfortable things.
0: Right now there's pinned low rates because the government can't afford rates to go higher. And so that's supercharging the inequality divide. And so it's just creating more and more and more inequality. And history shows and studies after studies show once inequality reaches a certain point, you have a resetting. And so it's like doubling down on this self-destruct button without letting up. To me, that that's an unsustainable math equation in a way. Which which ones do you see, or perhaps what is the one that you are the most worried about in the short or the long term?
1: I don't know. Of I don't know. I don't know. The reason I don't know is because, as I told you before, it's a it's a question of uh, confidence, right? I mean, do you do you have a formula for uh, when the marriage fails? Like, at what point does one of the spouses say, I, I can't take it anymore and walks out? Is there a formula for that? Is there an algorithm that can you know, describe that moment and project it with any kind of precision? I mean, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, it's specific to the situation. I mean, who knew that this virus was gonna happen? I mean, is that the moment? Is the uh, is, is it George Floyd killing? Uh, you know, the, the equivalent of the self-immolation of the uh, uh, Tunisian uh, trader who, you know, police brutality, he, in protest of police brutality, he burned himself and started the Arab Spring, which deposed the swaths of governments and opened all kinds of colored revolutions. Uh, I, I don't think you can do that. I, I think what, you, what we can say with some level of confidence is that um, the preconditions are all in place. And the only thing that's required here is a precipitant. Now, whether uh, or an accelerant or a precipitant. Now, whether whether this virus uh, crisis and this killing, uh, brutal killing, is that or is it t- going to take some other event? It's impossible to say. But w- we know that there will be an event. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter. Like. Like going back to this divorce thing, I mean, which argument triggers the final showdown? You put the cup in the wrong place. Like, is that really why the marriage fell apart? Because you left the dishes unwashed, or is that you know, or has this been coming for a long time? That's what I mean. So something seemingly inconsequential, otherwise, uh, will, if not already. Uh, spark the transition and the crisis that um, will change. You know, I mean, it won't change us in terms of our physical uh, form, but it would change the values and it would change the thinking. And if and if history is a guide, we will go back to a much more conservative, uh, much more. Back to basics. You know, typically we, we got way out on our skis in mm-hmm. terms of everything. Leverage, debt, spending money we don't have, thinking we're immortal, unbeatable, undefeatable, uh, unlimited resources. The resources are not unlimited. And that's what we're going to discover. And that's going to bring back. Look at what happened to people who lived through the Great Depression. I mean, they never borrowed money. They never spend more. They hoarded uh, you know, uh, essential goods. They were always very, very conservative and very, very careful. And the people who came before them in the twenties were, you know, profligate. And so uh, here we are. I mean, it's just the same, same deal. Everything that we're experiencing and will experience has happened before, just not to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, some of it has happened to me, say, yeah. but then to some of us, but not to most of us particularly in the United States. But, uh, but that's about it. I, I, there is no algorithm. I wish there were an algorithm. <laughs> you could probably make money with it, but I, 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 don't, think, I don't think there is. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Phenomenal. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Well, I hope any of this is helpful to you.
0: Oh, it's been brilliant.
1: Likewise. Take care. Here at The
0: Empire's New Clothes, we believe something big is in America's future. We don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy. So join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.